everybody, and welcome to Ghost Stories of Canada. My name is Zach, and I'll be your host this summer as we delve into folklore from coast to coast to coast. This is the summer 2019 podcast of Discover the Past walking tours based out of Victoria, British Columbia. My goal is to collect and relay the best ghost stories I can find from each province and territory. This means I'll be searching through books, web pages, and videos, as well as reaching out to other tour companies across the country to gather stories. Welcome to Episode 1. You can expect a new episode to be released every Monday and Thursday starting July 1st, and there will be 12 episodes in total. 13 if I can collect enough quality stories to have full episodes for each of Nunavut and the Northwest Territories, but we'll figure that out later. We'll be working our way westward, finishing with British Columbia. For today, our beginning is in the great province of Newfoundland and Labrador. To start and finish our episode today, I would like to take a look at a pair of hags. The one at the end can take on many forms, but to start with, let's head to Bell Island for one that the locals know all too well. While Nathaniel Hammond was out tending his plants in Bell Island's communal garden, his wife kept a close eye on the clock. He never went out for too long, and yet he had already been gone for more than an hour. As time dragged on, Mrs. Hammond became more and more nervous. Nathaniel wasn't one to wander off or to stop for a drink on the way home. Finally, she called upon her neighbor, Nathaniel's brother, and they set off in search for him. They found him near the marsh, not far from the garden, lying face down and presumably unconscious. However, they could not get too close to him. An overpowering stench filled their noses, that of nasty marsh but greatly amplified. Backing away and retching, Mrs. Hammond caught the eye of her husband's brother. Wordlessly, that glance confirmed what she had feared. Nathaniel looks to have had a run-in with the swamp hag. Bell Island is a 34-square-kilometer island in the water just off of Portugal Cove, opposite the bay from Harbour Grace and Carbonier, and not too far west from St. John's. In the early 1900s, it was a place where German sailors would often stop to acquire ore, to restock, and to dance with the locals. During the Second World War, a young woman was walking along the coastline away from the village. She crested a small hill and noticed a set of German U-boats up against the shore and a few men hustling about, restocking them. Before she could turn and hide, she saw one of them call out and gesture to the hill where she was standing. Panicking, she hurried down the side which she had come up and scrambled to a hiding place in some bushes. Breathing heavily, she waited as eventually a few of the men came into sight over the hill. They clambered down in search of her and quickly noticed her white dress among the bushes. Immediately they descended upon her and held her down. They knew if she was let free she would run back to the village and alert the authorities. Surely the U-boats would be long gone by then, but they would lose access to a very convenient secret restocking location in enemy water. It was decided that she could not be left alive. They dragged her up the hill and over to a marsh. When the putrid smell of the decaying plants hit her nose, the woman clued in to their intentions. She started screaming for help at the top of her lungs, for someone, anyone, to come and save her. Quickly the men pushed her down into the water, 
two holding her arms behind her back while one pushed her head below the surface. The struggle did not last for long. The woman succumbed to the bog, breathing in a gulp of rotting plants and thick water. The men left her there and returned to their camp. Locals had for years believed that marsh to be haunted by evil spirits that lured unsuspecting passers-by into its mires to die. If her screams were heard at all, no intelligent townsperson would dare go seek their source for fear of their own safety. As the years passed on, her cries could be heard echoing out over the marsh and across the hills. Locals came to know her as the Swamp Hag, and were warned to stay very clear of her at all times. Nathaniel Hammond knew the stories of the Swamp Hag very well when he went gardening. It was not hard to think of her as he bent down over his plants. A simple turn of his head would yield a clear view of the outskirts of the marsh. Nathaniel pushed any fancies or fears from his mind, however, and day after day returned to his section of the community garden. This day, however, as he worked in solitude with his gardening, he caught whiff of an awful scent, described by some as ten times worse than an outhouse and rotten eggs combined. It assaulted his senses, and he snapped his head around, heart pounding, but saw nothing around him but the garden and the marsh. He instantly decided that he had enough gardening for that day, and began to run back towards town, but only after a few steps the smell became too much, and he fell to the ground overcome by the stench. While he lay there coughing and hacking, he saw a young girl in white approach, apparently to help. As she got closer, she fell to her knees and started crawling. Her appearance changed. Her clothes became tattered, her skin turned an awful shade and started rotting, peeling off of her in several places. Her eyes became empty sockets as the skin on her face stretched tight over its features. Accompanying all of this was the ever-increasing stench of the marsh. Nathaniel tried to get up and run, but found he could not. He was paralyzed by fright. The hag crawled up over top of him and put her lips to his ear, hissing into it. She accused him and the whole community for leaving her to die because they were afraid of a few superstitions. Now it was his time to taste what she tasted, to smell what she had smelled, and there was no one that would come to save him. Eventually, Nathaniel's wife and brother were able to bring him back into town where he slowly recovered. For a while, he could not get rid of the stench of the marsh, no matter how many times he washed himself or how many clean sets of clothes he put on. It was as if he had swamp water itself coursing through his veins. Life went on for the Hammonds as it did for the rest of the folks on Bell Island. The legend of the Swamp Hag was eventually adapted into a play, where it caught the attention of some folks from Canada Post. In 2016, the story was commemorated as a postage stamp. And while it's been turned into somewhat of a fun story by actors and the Postal Service, the old-timers on Bell Island know it was born of a deeper root, and a very serious one at that. Telling the story is all well and good, but you can bet that no one on that island goes near the swamp alone even now. around Newfoundland often present horrible sailing conditions. Stormy seas and dangerous rocks have been cause for many a shipwreck. Sailing was always a treacherous profession, and yet Newfoundland's communities made livings out of it. It's only natural that the environment of Newfoundland's coastline and the people's penchant for storytelling have combined for, well, boatloads of stories concerning ghost ships. It was May 18th. 
1968 in the waters off of St. Schatz, one of Newfoundland's most southern communities. Jack and Steve were out in their boat and on their way back to shore when a thick fog suddenly rolled in. They lost their bearings but could thankfully hear the foghorn over a nearby trepacy. However, as they were reorienting their boat, they heard another sound coming from a different direction. It sounded like a ship's whistle. Concerned, they sailed towards that instead. For a while, they found nothing, just more fog and more waves. Suddenly, a shape emerged out of the fog, and they found themselves alongside a steamer. It was simply drifting there, not moving. There was no name on the side of the ship, but they could see passengers in the outer deck looking scared. Jack and Steve decided to climb aboard to see if they could help. Once they arrived on deck, they immediately sensed that something was wrong. There was an odd feeling on the boat, one that made their hair stand up on the backs of their necks. The passengers gave no sign of being aware of the newcomers. They simply stared straight ahead with vacant expressions. There were clearly several families on board, and everyone was dressed in old clothing. Eerily, Jack and Steve snaked their way among the statuesque travelers and over to the wheelhouse where they found the captain. He was at the wheel, looking straight ahead, just as the others with that same empty expression. They asked him the name of the boat they were on, but cold silence was their only answer. They tried again, this time inquiring as to the date the ship left port. Slowly, the captain turned only his head towards the intruders and spoke though his eyes showed no alertness in them and his voice sounded distant. We are in a very urgent situation here, son. We came upon the coast yesterday, May 18th, 1880, but we have been afloat in these foggy waters ever since. Will you please help us? Well, May 18th was certainly the date Jack and Steve were out in the water, but 1880 was a long time ago. Everything suddenly clicked. The clothes, the vacant expressions, their hair standing on end, even the fog seemed unnatural. Figuring they had to come up with an excuse to get off the boat before anything worse happened to them, they told the captain to hold tight. They would go get help. Hurry, please, was the captain's only demand, and he returned to looking out the window in front of him. Jack and Steve got off that boat as fast as they could, dodging the stationary passengers and hurling themselves back into their vessel. They began to speed away, not daring to look back, as they could feel the eyes of the passengers on their backs. When they arrived on shore, they finally looked back out to sea. The waters were calm now, and the fog was quite gone. The grey blanket that had enshrouded them for so long had completely dissipated. Wordlessly, they agreed that their lips were to remain sealed as to what had just transpired. That vow was broken years later, when one of them heard about a shipwreck around that same area. There was a steamer that had gone down in the fog back in 1880 on May the 18th. No one survived, and although some of the wreckage had been pulled from the water, no name for the boat was ever discovered. The next pair of stories will take us over to the coast of Labrador. You wouldn't think there'd be many ghost stories up there, but you would be wrong. The next two stories display the variety of folklore that's alive and well on the coast. Along the coast of Labrador, about eight kilometers north of the small settlement of Comfortbite, is another settlement on Frenchman's Island. The whole area around that part of the coast lacks roads of any kind, 
so most traveling has been done by dog sled for the longest time. In the early 1920s, a local trapper got lost during a blizzard. The wind had picked up, and the snow was kicking up into his eyes. He had no idea which direction led to his cabin, and had all but given up hope. That's when a big man, dressed all in white furs, appeared with his own dog sled team. He said nothing, but motioned for the trapper to follow him. The trapper, who was otherwise out of options, did so. They arrived at an abandoned cabin, where the trapper and his dogs took shelter. At some point, while they were hustling into the hut, diving quickly to get out of the storm, the trapper lost sight of the stranger in white furs. Looking around, he and his team were gone. And although the trapper spent a whole day in the refuge of the cabin while the storm subsided, the stranger never came back. The stranger in his day would have been Esau Dillingham, although no one ever called him that. He was a rough sort of character who made his living by making and selling his own brands of alcohol, so Smoker was the moniker by which he went. His hooch was most made of spruce cones, sugar, and yeast, although it could be quite harmful to consume. That didn't hinder his business, though, as for trappers all throughout that area, Smoker's was the only alcohol around. Some of his customers went mad from the moonshine. Some went blind. Others still became violently sick and remained so for weeks, wishing instead to die and have it over with. A handful of those unfortunate ones got their wish. Naturally, Smoker was wanted by what little law enforcement there was in rural Labrador, but his remote abode was well protected by defenses such as bear traps. He was all but untouchable. Traveling by dog sled, he wore a white fur coat to better camouflage himself against the snowy terrain. The few times he was seen by the law officers who gave chase, he was always too deft and his team too quick to be caught, and he would disappear into the falling snow. Smoker's luck turned for the worse in 1920 when he himself went mad from consuming his own brew. A frequent customer called upon Smoker's cabin looking to replenish his personal stock of spirits, but found Smoker in a violent state. Smoker attacked the man, killing him. Finally, the police were able to get into Smoker's home and haul him off to jail on Frenchman's Island. Poisoned from his own vile drink, he was unable to put up much resistance. While in jail, he succumbed to a seizure, during which he broke his back. Lying in pain on the floor for days, he drifted in and out of consciousness. During his last lucid moments, Smoker uttered a statement that would cement his place in Labrador's history. Lord, I know I've been wicked but I don't want to go to hell. Let me drive my team across this land until the end of time, so that I can undo the wrongs I've done. He died later that day, and was brought back to Newfoundland for burial. Years passed. Legends of Smoker's ghost grew. The mysterious man in white furs who had arrived just in time to save those on death's door and lead them back to safety. In 1949, Two RCMP officers stationed at Frenchman's Island were on their way back to their offices by dog sled when a blizzard overcame them. George Bateson and Ed Riopel began to fear for their lives. In the chaos of the blizzard, they lost their bearings and could no longer be sure of the direction home. In addition, the blizzard became deadly, assaulting them with whips of snow and ice at freezing temperatures. They noticed, just at the edge of their vision, a figure moving through the snow. It was a man, barely visible in the storm, driving a team of dogs. They called out but received no response. They began to follow him, figuring it was their only chance of survival. George and Ed kept pace with the stranger for over two hard hours. They were barely hanging on when they saw a cabin with smoke coming out of the chimney. They recognized it as the cabin belonging to some trappers they knew, and it wasn't far from Frenchman's Island. The mystery man with his dog sled had disappeared, and so George and Ed took shelter in the trapper's cabin. Once they got warm and had some food inside them, they were able to relay the events of the past few hours to the trappers. The officers wanted to find out who the man was, so they could repay him. The trappers, though, knew it was Smoker, and told George and Ed that their savior had been dead for almost thirty years. There wasn't much those two could do for him now. Perhaps it's just as well. Smoker spent his whole life evading the police, but in 1949 he guided them to safety. 
That would seem to be a fine repayment for his sins, but that wasn't the bargain he made on his deathbed. Smoker is set to be out in the rugged land of coastal Labrador until the end of time, as it were. An unpleasant future for him, no doubt, but one he was willing to accept rather than face eternal damnation. I can't help but wonder about his fate, when considering the different philosophies of what hell is like. Most of us imagine fire and brimstone, even though I wager that most of us don't know what brimstone is. But there are others who speak of hell as colder than ice itself, so freezing that it's more searing than fire. If that is indeed the case, then in his effort to avoid spending the rest of time in hell, Smoker might have ended up with a similar consequence, all the same. Some of the loneliest places you can find in Canada are its lighthouses. Placed on rocky outcroppings along remote stretches of shoreline or islands, lighthouses can be about as far removed from communities as you can get. If the isolation doesn't drive you insane, the fear of something happening to you and no one close enough to help very well might. The Point Amour Lighthouse is fortunate enough to be close to the community of Las Amour, Labrador. Though the village isn't very big, as of 2006 it had a whopping eight people living there. It overlooks the Strait of Belle Isle, where in 1860 or so, disaster struck. It was in the thick of a nasty storm, with foaming waters raging upon the crags and reefs. A Nova Scotian sea captain by the name of Johnson was doing his best to navigate his ship and his crew safely through the night. He knew of the Point of War lighthouse and was depending on its beacon to guide him to safety that night. As he was approaching the spot where the lighthouse should have been, there was simply darkness. Without the modern navigational methods we have today, Captain Johnson was relying on a navigational tool called Dead Reckoning, the name of which hints at its efficacy. With blackness surrounding him and the waves tossing his boat to and fro, there was nothing out there to reckon at all. No light, no lighthouse. The lighthouse was, in all truth, there within Captain Johnson's line of sight. The lighthouse keeper, though, had dozed off. Johnson's ship whistle awoke the keeper with a start, and he realized the light, unattended to for hours, had burned out. To relight it, the keeper had to bring oil up the 139 steps and tend to the light itself. He grabbed what oil he could, and made a dash for it, but he was not quick enough. Without the beacon from Point Amour, Captain Johnson's ship wrecked along the rocks. Not a soul survived. On stormy nights at the solitary lighthouse, a man creeps up to the front door and knocks. It's then said he'll enter in and roam the halls in his yellow oilskins, anchor chains dragging along behind him. Captain Johnson has returned, looking for the lighthouse keeper that cost him his life. The local lore dictates that should you find yourself confronting Captain Johnson, you've got to call out to him and clearly state that you are not the lighthouse keeper. He should leave you alone for the night. The people that live along that shore know the legend well, although no one readily admits to having such an encounter. Even the people that tend the lighthouse today don't put much stock into it. With that being said, they wager that despite the brave talk of the Labrador village folks in the area, you'd be hard-pressed to find anyone ready and waiting to spend the night, especially when a storm is brewing off the coast. You'd certainly not find me first in line for that. My mum used to play a CD in the car on long drives, Ten Carat Diamond, by Canadian singer Charlotte Diamond. It had all sorts of fun songs for kids. I'm a pizza, looking for Dracula, Sasquatch, and a whole host of other awesome tunes. However, 
we had a second CD by Charlotte Diamond called Diamonds and Dragons, which filled the six-year-old me with the most extreme dread a first grader could have. Sure, the songs on it were cute and fun enough, but as each track went by, my anxiety grew a little more, and more, until I would start sweating. Track number six, Fly High Unicorn, would have me almost in tears, not because of the song itself, unicorns aren't exactly frightening, but rather because I knew what the next track would be. Track number seven, The Imp with Blood Red Eyes. In all reality, the story itself, as I recall, is actually a heartwarming one. What scared a little kid at first glance turned out to be a friendly little imp with brilliant blue eyes. However, under certain circumstances, his eyes, as the name suggests, would be blood-red, looking in on her at night. That's about as intense as it got, but as a six-year-old, holy smokes did that ever instill a great deal of fright in me. Maybe it was the way Charlotte said, blood-red eyes on the track, just like that. Uh, maybe it was the way the imp would scratch on the windows during the night. Whatever it was, I spent many a night in bed with my eyes glued to the window in fear of the one time I might see red eyes looking back in. There's something about red eyes which is inherently frightening. The idea of red eyes comes up in many ghost stories and urban legends, as with the one we heard just now a few moments ago. The most famous one from Newfoundland is from Glovertown just north of Terra Nova National Park, and it's based entirely on a pair of red eyes. The old pulp and paper mill, which still stands on the outskirts of Glovertown, never opened in 1922. Construction was halted then due to a lack of funds. It was purchased the next year, 1923, by the Anglo-Newfoundland Development Company, but during testing they found that it was much too small and not worth their while to complete. Instead, what they did was they hauled off all the new machinery and left the husk standing where it remains, untouched. The first story happened in the 1980s, when a young couple found themselves sitting, wink, in their car in an empty lot near the mill one night. They paused when they noticed the sound of something scratching the underside of their car. Slowly, the couple rolled down the passenger window, which had fogged up, and peeked out into the darkness. There, about 100 feet away, was the figure of a man standing atop a pile of sand, his arms outstretched and his mouth open in what looked like a scream. The couple heard nothing. They didn't waste any time in peeling out of there in their car, all the while checking their mirrors to see if they could still catch a glimpse of him looking back with his bright red eyes. People said they could see these red eyes looking back down on them from the topmost tower of the mill at night. It was supposed to be the ghost of a man who died during construction, falling into the concrete as the walls went up. He had allegedly been so stuck in the concrete that they simply kept him there, and he became part of the building itself. By the 1990s, the mill became a favorite hangout for teens, out of sight from town, perfect for drinking, complete with its own swimming hole, and a perfect breeding ground for stories of old red eyes. Try as they might, or might not, very few teens ever saw him looking back from the shadows of the old mill at night. An alternate story involved a man who lived on the construction site and who would take his little girl out to the water to swim on weekends. He himself couldn't swim, but he would watch his daughter carefully from land, always instructing her never to go out too far. One afternoon, she did. He called out for her to come back in, but she discovered that she couldn't. The current was pulling her farther and farther away from shore. He jumped in, intending to rescue her, but he floundered there in the water, unable to get close to her. She was swept away into the ocean, and he barely made it back to shore alive. Grief-stricken, he went to the top of the mill's tower and jumped. 
It's his red eyes that can be seen up at the top of the tower, and it's his daughter's ghost that can be heard crying at night, echoing through the old rooms. There are many varying accounts of the red eyes watching from the empty old mill in Glovertown, and just as many different explanations of how this unnamed construction worker met his fate, whether buried in the walls, jumping off the tower, hanging himself, or even falling into a vat of lead. Due to the inconsistency in the descriptions and the fact that places from all over tend to have similar stories, you, dear listener, might even know a few yourself, it's quite likely that this story is simply a concoction of creative minds over the past near century. For the residents of Glovertown, however, and for my six-year-old self, it is as real as the moon above. You see, when you're alone in your house or your car, and something comes to scratch at the window, you might break out into a sweat, or you might start getting a little nervous. For it might not just be the imp that has blood red eyes. So give a sailor not your heart, lest sorrow you do seek. Let true love not be torn apart by favors from the sea. Thus reads the chorus from Great Big Sea's haunting ballad, Safe Upon the Shore. Married life for sailors, and especially sailors' wives, was a life fraught with worry and loneliness. For the women back on land, they had little way of knowing whether they would ever see their husbands alive again. Each time the men set sail, the women would be left behind to wait, just wait, and keep their ears open for news of the latest shipwreck while praying that their husbands' boats were not among them. Matthew Trilligan knew this was to be his life when he fell in love with Kathleen. These St. John's sweethearts got engaged and were preparing themselves for this uncertain life to become their reality. Perhaps it was the weeks leading up to the wedding with this on their mind that made them anxious. Perhaps they were still in the honeymoon phase of their love, willing to say anything and whisper sweet nothings at all hours of the day. Whatever the case may have been, the day of their wedding arrived, and it was met by a pair of very unique wedding vows. Matthew spoke first. If death should come to me, you, my loving wife, will be the first to know. Whether I am in heaven or hell, I will come for you, Kathleen, and take you with me. This I swear. Kathleen responded, I will go freely with you, my dearest, whether it be to heaven or hell. These untraditional vows sent ripples through the community. Word spread quickly from the wedding guests to their neighbors and then across town. The people of St. John's felt that the couple, with such daring statements, was quite plainly asking for trouble. Spring arrived. Winter had seen Matthew and Kathleen enjoying life together, but when the ice began to melt, Matthew had to get to work. He went to sea. Kathleen accepted her lonely life, and for a while she made the most of it. She had friends and family in town, and the idea of Matthew coming home again in the fall kept her going. The summer rolled on, and one by one the ships began to return to St. John's Harbor. For several weeks there was a steady stream of men, disembarking and running into their wives' waiting arms. Kathleen's arms remained empty, however, as Matthew's ship had become the only one yet to return. She spent days down at the docks awaiting her husband's ship. Eventually she found a man who had been on a boat bound for Portugal, like Matthew's, 
The man confirmed that Matthew Trilligan and the crew had safely delivered their cargo to Portugal, and the man had seen them set sail for home before heading westward himself. Nothing had been heard of their ship since. Summer faded into autumn. The first snowfall signaled the onset of winter, a harsh, cold season that didn't wait for Matthew to return home. One dark, foggy night, one of Kathleen's neighbors couldn't sleep. She was lying in her bed, eyes wide open, when a sound from outside caught her attention. Off, down the lane, it sounded as if someone was approaching. There was a shuffling of slow, steady footsteps. She sat upright and peered through her curtains into the lantern-lit alleyway. There, coming down the lane, was Matthew Trilligan. At least, it appeared to be Matthew Trilligan. Something about him was unsettling, though. His eyes were lifeless, and he seemed to be unaware of his surroundings. Unwavering, he marched forth until he arrived at the door to his home, where Kathleen was fast asleep. More faces popped up in neighboring windows, and from their quiet vantage points the townsfolk watched as Matthew entered the house. What surely was only a minute or so seemed to take an hour to the neighbors, who waited with bated breath in the safety and silence of their own bedrooms. A blood-curdling shriek pierced the night sky, causing the neighbors to jump in fright. They strained their ears, listening for any sign of more trouble, but no sound emerged. They watched, all of them speechless, as Matthew Trilligan again appeared at the door of his house. This time he was on his way out, that same dead look in his eyes. He was now carrying Kathleen in his arms. She shared his lifeless look, one arm draped across her chest, the other dangling loosely at her side, and her head rolled back with her eyes open and mouth in a smile that would haunt the neighbors' minds for months. As they disappeared down the foggy lane, Kathleen could be heard laughing until, slowly, all sounds faded away. The neighbors congregated in the alleyway within minutes, and it was decided they should investigate the Trilligan home. The door was wide open as Matthew had left it, and they walked right in with ease. The wooden staircase leading up to the second floor was wet. Small pools of water had formed on a handful of steps. There was even a piece of seaweed stretched out over the landing floor. The concerned witnesses climbed up the steps and followed the trail of water into the bedroom. There, lying in bed, was Kathleen, dead. There was a large pooling of water around the side of the bed where she had slept. She herself was soaked, as were the sheets, and there was a smell of rotting seaweed in the room. Kathleen's eyes were wide open, just as they had seen in the alleyway and there was a horrible grin on her face. Matthew had come back, and clearly followed through on his wedding vow. It was evident that so had Kathleen. Thank mm-hmm. you.
of St. John's most famous and long-standing ghosts is that of Catherine Snow. She was born Catherine Manderville in Harbor Grace around 1793, but later moved to Salmon Cove as a young adult. It was in Salmon Cove that she married John Snow, and while they had seven children together, there was no love lost between the two of them. The Snows were known to fight, big, violent conflicts several times each week. The folks of Salmon Cove wondered how they could put up with each other, but in 1833, it turned out that Catherine and John simply couldn't. On August 31st of that year, the couple had one of their trademark altercations. John Snow could be seen and heard, yelling around his house and behaving quite ferociously. That was the last anyone ever saw of John Snow, as shortly after, he was reported missing. Police were called out to investigate. Looking around John Snow's wharf, they found dried blood staining the wooden planks. It looked as if they had a murder on their hands. They found and arrested two suspects, Arthur Spring, a household servant, and Tobias Manderville, Catherine's first cousin, with whom she had taken up a not-so-secret affair. Upon hearing the news of these arrests, Catherine fled into the woods, fearing that the law should come to her. The murdered man's wife, fleeing into hiding, arouses quite a suspicion as to her role in the messy affair, however. Catherine must have realized this, for it wasn't long before she turned herself in, hoping to give her side of the story. Arthur was the first of the three to speak. He confessed to the crime, saying that all three of them had killed Jon Snow. They had shot him and threw him into the ocean. But who had pulled the trigger? That detail was one that Arthur vehemently pinned on Tobias, and Tobias returned the favor. Meanwhile, Catherine professed her innocence of the whole matter. All three of them pleaded not guilty, and the trial began in St. John's at the courthouse. It only took twelve hours. It was simple enough to convict Arthur and Tobias. They had both confessed despite their plea. For Catherine, it was a whole different story. There was absolutely no evidence to support Catherine having been either present at the time of the murder or having conspired alongside Arthur and Tobias at all. The Attorney General stated that there was no direct or positive evidence of her guilt. Catherine, it seemed, had everything going in her favor. And yet, the all-male jury produced the verdict of guilty. Catherine, along with Arthur and Tobias, was sentenced to swing. It was only a matter of days before the crowds outside on Duckworth Street could look up and see the lifeless bodies of Tobias Manderville and Arthur Spring dangling from the courthouse window. There was an entire lack of Catherine, however. She was found to be pregnant, although the father could have been either Jon Snow or Tobias Manderville. It mattered very little to the public. Both were dead anyway. Catherine was allowed to wait until the child was born, then even to nurse it for a few days, which must have been horribly bittersweet for her. I cannot imagine knowing that the day you get to bring your own child into the world and hold them in your arms serves as the beginning of a short but deadly countdown on your own life. On July 21st of 1834, in front of a large crowd, Catherine Snow was hanged outside the very same window as Tobias and Arthur before her. Her last words were as follows. I was a wretched woman but I am as innocent of any participation in the crime of murder as an unborn child. Nothing further escaped her lips. The Catholic Church tried to have her sentence commuted, but failed. Instead, believing her to be entirely innocent, they could at least give her a Christian burial in their graveyard. Within days, Catherine's ghost was seen inside the courthouse, outside where the hanging took place, and over in the Catholic cemetery. She clearly wasted no time in getting back out into the world, as sightings were frequent. Local newspapers told stories of observers from all walks of life catching glimpses of Catherine's spirit in those places. 
Local newspapers told stories of observers from all walks of life catching glimpses of Catherine's spirit in those places. The general consensus was that due to the great injustice done upon her, Catherine Snow would never rest. Time would prove to support that theory, as twelve years later, the courthouse burned down. While a new courthouse was being constructed, workers reported sightings of Catherine amongst the structures. Catherine moved into the new building with relative ease. Another fire, in 1892, one that claimed quite a number of St. John's buildings, brought down the second courthouse. A third was opened in 1902, and people inside were met by encounters with, you guessed it, Catherine Snow. Dead she was, but resting in peace she very clearly was not. Catherine is still seen throughout and outside the final iteration of the St. John's Courthouse. The one built in 1902 stands to this day. She is seen gliding through the hallways and down the stairs. The elevator will travel from floor to floor all on its own. A trained ear by a night staff member will be quick to identify the sound of footsteps echoing down the empty halls. As for the cemetery where she was buried... It lies around and underneath St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church, known simply as the Kirk, and she is seen wandering the grounds and the rooms of this church. With her very persistent ghost as active as ever, the Newfoundland Historical Society decided to reopen her case seven years ago. They held a new trial with a jury of 460 people. They looked over the facts, they examined what little evidence there was, and they considered the former attorney's general strong statement regarding the case. The verdict? Not guilty, of course. At last, they figured Catherine Snow's spirit would be allowed to rest. Days later, however, she was seen again in the courthouse, and has been seen, just as always, ever since. With two Supreme Court justices, an attorney and a jury of 460. It appears the only oversight in the new trial was that no one had remembered to invite the defendant. I have one more story for you that I'd like to share, and I'll be honest, it was the only story that actually freaked me out a little bit while researching. That is because it concerns an experience that is totally out of our control that can happen at any given night, and anywhere in the world. You will probably recognize exactly what I'll be talking about, but before I get started on that, there are a few important announcements you'll want to hear. First, I would like to acknowledge that these stories are not my own, nor are they collected by Discover the Past Walking Tours. The stories you have heard today are from various websites and public forums, as well as the following books. Canadian Ghost Stories by Barbara Smith, published by Lone Pine Publishing in 2001, which you can find on Amazon or through Chapters in Indigo, as well as other bookstores near and around you. Great Canadian Ghost Stories, also by Barbara Smith, published by Touchwood Editions in 2018, which you can also find on Amazon or through Chapters in Indigo. This is a new release, and I especially encourage you to search for it in local bookstores to support Barbara's work and to learn more about each area of Canada. She writes wonderful stuff. Haunted Ground, Ghost Stories from the Rock by Dale Jarvis, published by Flanker Press in 2017. You can find this on Amazon, Chapters in Indigo, and on Flanker Press's website. I picked up a copy of the book in a haunted store in Carboneer last year, and I've loved going through it. In addition, I would like to recognize Dale Jarvis's work of being, quote-unquote, the ghost guy for his province. I was hard-pressed to find any stories from any source that didn't have Dale attached to them in some way. His fingerprints were on everything. Newfoundland is lucky to have such a chronicler like Dale. And, like Barbara Smith, everything he writes is golden. Dale runs his own ghost tour company out of St. John's, The Haunted Hike. Tours run Sunday to Thursday at 9.30pm throughout the summer. I attended one last year and loved it. If you ever find yourself in St. John's, do 
not pass up the opportunity to join in on one. For more information, check out hauntedhike.com. It is not finalized as of the writing of this episode, but by the time you hear this recording, you should be able to find this podcast on discoverthepast.com and hopefully also places like iTunes, Apple Podcast, Spotify, and Stitcher. When you do find it, it would be incredibly kind and helpful of you to leave us a rating and review. The more reviews and the higher ratings we get, the more people we can reach with these stories. That's just the way that these uh, hosting platforms algorithms work. If you don't know what to say in the review, consider writing, Wow, I didn't know Newfoundland and Labrador had such a spooky history. I just know I'll get nightmares about red eyes watching me through my window. Or something along those lines. The music for the podcast was written and recorded by yours truly. My name is Zach, and I'm one of the guides for Discover the Past Walking Tours, again based out of Victoria, British Columbia. Our next episode will be released on Thursday, July 4th, and will feature Nova Scotia. Pirates, forerunners, and the devil himself are on their way, and we'll be ready for you to hear all about them. If you're interested in learning more about what we do, head on over to discoverthepast.com. All throughout the summer, we run historical walking tours every day at 10.30 a.m. and 2 o'clock p.m. Everything from Emily Carr-centered tours to guided walks through Canada's oldest Chinatown. Our specialty tours, however, are in the evening. Every night of the week, we run our ghostly walks. We have eight different routes, a different one at 7.30 p.m. for every night of the week, and then our classic route every night at 9.30 p.m. All our tours, daytime and nighttime, are 90 minutes long and start at 812 Wharf Street outside the Visitor's Information Center. The only exception to this is our Chinatown History Walk, which starts at 1689 Government Street outside the Starbucks. We would certainly love to see you out on one of our tours any time of the day, any time during the summer, or in the years to come. Now, all that's left for us today is this final story. Sleep Paralysis All things ghostly aside, is there any thought that can frighten a person more as they crawl into bed and turn off the lights? The knowledge that, at any moment of any night, you might find that the room has gone cold that you cannot move a muscle, and that you can see someone, just the shadow of a person, looming over you from the foot of your bed. The shadow begins to move toward you, crawling up your legs and on top of your body. You can feel each movement as it digs into the sheets. Desperately, you try and break free, but to no avail. It places its head right up to yours, and you can feel its breath on your neck. You try and call out, but no sound escapes your throat. And when all seems hopeless, suddenly it's gone. You're back to normal. You've regained your sense of movement. But the feeling of what you just went through is enough to keep you awake for weeks. Dale Jarvis takes us through some interesting perspectives on a Newfoundland take of this experience in Haunted Ground. Lloyd was one of the people who succumbed to such an experience. He was half asleep when he felt someone come into the room and approach his bed. There was an awful, creepy feeling along his spine as the room got bone-chillingly cold. Although Lloyd could not see the person, he could feel them move through the bed up toward him. All at once, someone reached up through the bed and grabbed his biceps, pulling him down into the mattress. Lloyd snapped awake. He couldn't move, but he could still feel the fingers wrapped around his arms, holding him in place. Eventually, the feeling went away, and Lloyd's body returned to normal. Too frightened to sleep, he stayed awake the rest of the night, and began recounting his experience in the morning. Oh, that was the old hag, was the response. The term old hag was perhaps perpetuated by Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, and like in that play, 
the Newfoundland old hag strikes in that vulnerable space in between waking and sleeping. For all that mystifies us to this day about our dreaming minds, perhaps even more unknown to us, is this time in all of our nights where we are on the edge of sleep. We never remember it in the morning, and we're rarely aware of it when it happens. Sometimes, in this hazy state, you see her. She's standing or sitting in your room near the foot of your bed. Her horribly sad face is twisted up in a kind of grimace, and her eyes, black and sunken into her head as they are, are glued on you. The old hag can appear in different forms than her name would suggest. Instead of this terrible image, perhaps a large, vicious white dog in the room, for example. Perhaps the best-known version of the old hag outside of Newfoundland is the shadow of a man watching you through your doorway from out in the hall. That is precisely why I personally always sleep with the door closed. In Haunted Ground, Susan relays a few of her encounters. She says she's had several run-ins with the old hag. Often there will be a sensation of pressure over her whole immobile body, pushing her deep into the bed. One time she even awoke to light tickling, like hair or feathers, on her face. This doesn't do anything to relieve her of the sense of darkness surrounding her and of malevolence that accompanies the old hag. There have been a couple proposed cures for the old hag. Making the sign of the cross on the roof of your mouth with your tongue can do the trick. I assume that while the rest of your body is frozen, perhaps your tongue is not. If you're worried you won't be able to move even your tongue, try keeping a Bible under your pillow. If you find you're able to speak, recite the Lord's Prayer forwards or backwards. If it doesn't make the old hag go away, at least it should help keep your brain busy while she hangs around. Incidentally, I found this to be a useful trick for gritting through things like receiving freezing in the dentist's chair. Except instead of reciting the Lord's Prayer backwards, I've taken to trying to list the U.S. state capitals by reverse alphabetical order. Anything that will eat up time and distract your brain should work. There are some non-Christian-based remedies to the old hag in addition to the ones you've just heard. You might say your name backwards three times. You might change your sleeping posture. You might be more likely to be visited by the old hag if you sleep on your back. One fellow from Cornerbrook simply moved into a different house, and that solved his problems. I didn't want to research too much more into the old hag than what's listed in Dale Jarvis's book, because the idea is already alarming enough without more horror stories and visual renderings shown online. I did a quick Google search for cures to sleep paralysis, however, and the bottom line is to ensure you're setting up good sleep habits, sleeping regular, healthy hours, properly winding down before bedtime, and so on. Sleep paralysis may still occur, but it shouldn't be anything life-altering. If your experiences have caused you anxiety so that you're finding it difficult to even get to sleep, that makes a reoccurrence more likely. Instead, go see your doctor. Now, Dale closes off his chapter on the old hag with a final anecdote that I will not relay to you here. The old hag and sleep paralysis can be terrifying enough without Dale's send-off, although I must confess, I did get a good fear-laden chuckle out of it. If you want to find out what it was, and I encourage you to do so, pick up Haunted Ground Ghost Stories from the Rock. As you've heard, a few of the stories on this episode are from it. And from cover to cover, it's an excellent read. Just maybe not right before you go to sleep.
Thank you.